Well, good morning. If you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at all of this chapter by the end of the morning. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the past few years, maybe the past few decades, there's been a rise in apocalyptic movies and books. Right? Have you guys noticed this? Books all about the end of the world. Books and movies about doomsday. Uh, actually, uh, my, my seminary uh, that I went to about 15 years ago or 20 years ago got in the game too. I remember one day I was walking and I couldn't get into my chapel. Um, there's a book called The Road by Cormac McCarthy and they turned it into a movie and a scene was shot in my seminary. So even my seminary was getting financially into the doomsday craze, right? And it's not just books and movies. I think, personally, one of the, the best songs written in the last maybe 15 years, it's eerie, it's beautiful, is a, uh, a song written by Adele. All right? I lo- love me some Adele, okay? So just bear with me for a second. She, she wrote a song for a movie, a Bond movie, called uh, Skyfall. And I'm not the only one who thinks she's a genius. She won in 2013 an Oscar, okay? For this song. And if you read the lyrics, or if you, I dare say, sing the lyrics with Adele, don't worry, I won't attempt to do that. But if you do, and you look at the first lyric, it's all about the end of the world. It's all about the apocalypse. It's all about doomsday. The first lyric begins this way. This is the end. Hold your breath and count to ten. Well, this past week I've been thinking about Why is it that we sort of, as a culture and as a world, why do we love doomsday movies, like apocalyptic movies? I have a sort of theory. I mean, in one sense, everyone believes that the world will come to an end, right? Even just talk to an atheist, they believe the world will come to an end. So so on one level, we all sort of believe existentially that the end of the world is inevitable. But, But I think there's a second part to my theory. You see, what these books do what these songs do, what these movies do for us, is they allow us, in a sort of avatar way, go to the end of the world, experience the end of the world, and think through how we would respond to the end of the world. Right? Isn't that what they do? Right? So, so you can do this all within the safety of your living room. And you can go to the end of the world and go, okay, would, would I be a good guy or a bad guy? Well, would I have what it takes to survive the end of the world? And so we sort of have these sorts of end of the world type of movies and books and music because they help us make sense of what we all know deep down is coming. Well, in one sense, this morning in our text in chapter 2 of Acts, we come to the end of the world. Many of you know this, in 1947, scientists came together and they invented sort of symbolically a clock. Right? It was called the doomsday clock. And it was a symbol to say how close they thought we were coming to the end of the world. Well, Acts chapter 2 is sort of the doomsday clock. It's the end of the world. It's, it's that moment in time where the clock starts ticking. The countdown has begun. The end is near. And the question for us is this. How are you going to respond when the end comes? 
Will you be able to survive it? How are you going to respond when the end of the world comes? This morning in our text, Jesus inaugurated his kingdom by pouring out the Spirit as Peter testifies to the risen Jesus that he is the Lord, which then has an individual response and a corporate response. Now, that's clunky, all right? That's my big idea. That's clunkier than my first car. So let me try to pare that down, okay? Here's the big idea in condensed form. Jesus is the king. It should be behind me. Jesus is the king, and he offers an opportunity to enter his kingdom. The question is, will you heed this offer? Now, I think the best way to go through this chapter is we're going to look at first an event. Then we're going to look at the meaning of that event. And then we're going to look at the response of the event, right? The event is in verses 1 to 13. The meaning in verses 14 to 36. And then the response, verse 37 to 47. So first, let's look at... At the event, go with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verse 1 to verse 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they're amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, um, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jew and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said this, They are filled with new wine. We'll stop there. So we learned in chapter one that, that Jesus says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until an event, until my spirit is poured forth. And so 120 are gathered, they're praying. And then 50 days after the Passover, right? As, as Pentecost has arrived, which is also known as the Festival of Weeks, right? Which is a celebration of God's gifts, right? His provisions for his people. Well, they're gathered here, but now this Pentecost isn't just celebrating God's gifts in general. There's a particular gift that God is about to send that they're about to celebrate. It's not merely a physical gift. It's the gift of God himself, at this Pentecost, God shows up, right? From heaven, there's a sound like the wind and the house is filled, you know, this house filled with 120 people. They're, they're, they're filled with this amazing sound. And, and then 
we see fire descend upon them. Now, the, the details are pretty extraordinary, aren't they? But, but really what's going on here is this is a theophany. Now, that's just a fancy word to saying this is a theophany, meaning this is where God in real time and space, God meets his people. God has entered time, space. God has appeared. And it's really not the first time we've seen a theophany, right? If you read in the Old Testament, theophanies, though rare, they come up. Think of Moses in the burning bush. Think of Moses on, the, on Mount Sinai, right? God appears and thunder comes from heaven. Think of Elijah, right? He's also on a mountain. And wind, and thunder come upon him. And he meets with God. You probably all know that like when a boxer comes out to a ring or, or an MMA fighter, right, comes out, there's like entrance music. Well, well God has entrance music. And it's thunder, fire. It's like cataclysmic in its nature. And that's what we have here, right? An appearance of God. God enters into this, this house with fire and wind and thunder. God shows up. In the person of the, the, the third person of the Trinity, God shows up. The spirit descends, verse 4, and they're all filled with him, and they begin to speak. And just look what happens, right? They gather. Remember, this is Pentecost, right? This is one of the three major feasts of the year. And so, right, they gather, and there's quite a commotion, as you can imagine. And so devout men from every nation, they gather. And then you see in verse 9, you see the list, right? It's quite the list, it's like a United Nations roll call. What's going on here? Well, if you just think about it, if you were to take a kind of map and, and put all of these different kind of ethnic groups on a map, you'd realize that basically it's, well, it's people from the four corners of the compass, right? North, south, east, and west. These are people who have come to gather back in Jerusalem who have been dispersed ever since the exile. You might remember when we went through um, Ezra that, that some came back to the, to the land after the captivity, but not everyone did. And so Jews were dispersed. And so now they're back. They're back in the city of the king. And then verse six, they, they come together and they are they're confused, right? They're bewildered. They're, they're, they're shocked. Now, why are they shocked? N- not because they see literal fire and they're like, wow, that's a crazy miracle. They're not shocked because they're like, oh, God showed up. They're, they're shocked at what God does, right? They can hear in their own language a message from God. Now, it's interesting because there was a sort of lingua franca of the day. There was a common language, and it was Greek. And so if the point was just, okay, all these different people from from Parthians and Arabians, like all these different parts, we want them to come together and hear and understand a message, they could have just spoken in Greek. So, so, So the point isn't just that they understand. There's something theological going on here. What's actually going on here is that God is rolling back a curse. 
When God descends in the third person of the Trinity, God is rolling back the curse of Babel. Remember Babel? People want to make a name for themselves. And judgment comes on them. And part of the judgment of God is a scattering of the people. And particularly a scattering of the people by a confusion of their language. And now they come back together. And that judgment is rolled back. There's this united praise of God. And notice it's not like sort of in a unified language. Actually, they're, they're praising God in different languages. And, and look at what the content of the message is, right? You might be wondering, like, what is the purpose of the Spirit's filling? Ever wonder that? Well, what is the purpose of the Spirit when, when he descends and fills? Well, verse 11, they heard in their own languages the mighty works of God. Now, that, that, that phrase, mighty works, it doesn't come again in the New Testament. But it does in the Old Testament. And every time the word mighty gods is used in the Old Testament, what it's connected to is God's saving works, God's saving purposes in both the Exodus and the wilderness. And so what they're hearing is God's salvation, what God has done in this world. That's the point and purpose of the Spirit's filling here. The the Spirit is filling men and women, this 120, in order to communicate something. And the particularities of that communication is the mighty saving works of God. I, I think sometimes we think of the Spirit's filling like only in emotional terms. Or sometimes if you uh, watch particular uh, television shows, it, it's almost as if the Spirit's filling is like Star Wars, right? S- some people have the filling, other people don't, right? Just like the Force, right? If you watch Star Wars, some have the Force, some don't. And some are really powerful in the Force. And so we think of the Spirit like that, like, oh, I need to tap in because I want to do some crazy, you know, Jedi tricks. So, so, so the Spirit's filling is all connected to, to this Force, the Spirit is not a force. The Spirit's a person. You can grieve the Holy, per- the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's a person. And so when the Spirit fills, and it, when he's continually filling, as we see it here, which is a good thing, we should all want to be filled, but, but remember, the, the point of the filling is actually what they're doing. They are prophesying. They are communicating the mighty works of God. They are, and you're going to see in a second, they are connecting God and Jesus. You see, the the Spirit is always shining a light on Jesus Christ. I mean, what what does Jesus himself say in uh, John chapter 15? He says, "But, but when the Helper comes, that's the Spirit, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will hear, you will bear witness to me. That's the point of the Helper coming, that you will bear witness to me. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be, you could put it this way, it's to be Jesus-centered. The Spirit's filling is not like a magic trick, right? This is not like Houdini stuff. Being filled with the Spirit is in connection with pointing in your words and your deeds to Jesus Christ. 
such that those who are spirit-filled are manifesting Jesus in their words, in their actions. They're becoming more like Jesus. They're bearing witness to Jesus with words, deeds, and actions. Which is amazing. And when this happens, some are amazed. Do you see that? Some are amazed in verse 12. Some are perplexed. We're going to see. Some mock. Verse 12. They, they say, um, what's going on here, right? Like, are you, are you drunk? And I think what, what we should realize is that when miracles happen, it doesn't mean that everyone in, just instantly goes, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. Right? Jesus did many miracles, and yet, though Jesus did miracles, many who saw those miracles still moved to crucify the miracle maker. So that's the event, this, this pouring out of the Spirit. But now, let, let's look at the meaning. Because without the meaning, the event's confusing. So, so look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For those, for these people, they're not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then the last day it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they, they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would let one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of all of that we are witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from him the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. <laughs> 
we'll stop there. So Peter stands up, right? Peter stands up and he lifts up his voice and he kind of speaks for the group. He's empowered by the spirit and he announces men and women, those who are gathering, like we're, we're not drunk, right? It's pretty early. And he says, basically, this, in this sermon, don't, don't you know? Don't you recognize? Can't you see? Don't you know your Old Testaments? It's the end of the world. It's exactly what Joel said would happen. The Spirit has poured forth. It's the latter days. Don't you recognize it? And so if you look, if you've got your Bible open, you, you'll see that there's, and the authors, um, the translators, I, I think, help you in this way. There's three Old Testament texts that are quoted. So we've got Joel 2 and 17 to 21. We've got Psalm 16 in verse 25 to 28. And in verse 35, we've got Psalm 110. And Peter links these. And if you want to know sort of his big idea in this Sermon, just read the last verse, verse 36. This is his big idea that's on, that's on Peter's screen behind him, right? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is Peter's sermonic big idea. Jesus is king. And so what he does in verse 17 to 21, he quotes Joel. And he does so because Joel predicted the end of the world. That, that there would be a time where the spirit would pour forth. It would, it would then kind of inaugurate the end, the end, these latter days. And so he says, that's happened, right? That the spirit would fall without discrimination, right? Did you see the list? It, it's sort of exhaustive, right? Men, women, free, slave, young, old. The spirit is indiscriminately falling. But when this would happen, two things would also happen. You see, in Joel's days, they thought when the spirit would come, then instantly the end would happen. Well, Peter is saying, actually, the, the end is split. So when the spirit would fall, also it, it would mean that Jesus is king and salvation is granted to the nations but we also see in verses 19 through 21 that judgment is coming. Did you, did you see that, right? Blood, fire, smoke, sun turned to darkness. That's, that's the language of judgment. And so Joel's prophecy is that at the end of day, there will be judgment. But then verse 21, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we could put it, in a, what I thought was a clever way. When the end of the world comes, there's a sort of a, an escape hatch. There's an escape hatch on judgment. Right? Like sort of all apocalyptic movies, you, you know, when it comes, it's hell. It's hellish. It's terrifying. But Peter's reminding us that there's, there's a way out of this hell. There's a way out of this judgment. And so he preaches this sermon to persuade those who are listening to, to take it, right? To escape the judgment by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. And we're, we're going to get to the response in a second. 
but, but he's using persuasion. And actually, he uses a really wonderful persuasive argument, right? In verse 22, Peter gives, starting in verse 22, he gives four reasons for why we should believe that the Messiah is the Lord. In verse 22, that Jesus was attested to by God with many signs and wonders. Then in verse 23, Jesus wasn't just crucified because of mob violence. No, no, no. This was according to the definitive foreknowledge of God. This was planned. Then verse 24, with this quote of Psalm 16, Jesus rose from the grave. Right? And his basic point is that, that when David wrote Psalm 16, he, he, he used this language that, that he would never right, see death. And he's saying, well, you even see him explain it there in verse 30. Well, David did experience death, right? He is in a tomb, right? You could go see him, he's saying. So, so this couldn't just be about David. Psalm 16 must be pointing to someone else. It must be pointing to Jesus and his resurrection. And then in verse 33, he says, see, and, and the pouring of the Spirit is proof after the ascension of Jesus so, so this is what Peter says. He basically gives a really wonderful expression of the gospel. He says, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, all of it is proof that Jesus is Lord. And he roots all of this, because remember, he's talking to Jews. He roots all of it in the Old Testament. That's Peter's persuasive sermon. Now, before we get to the response, and the response is wonderful, I just want to point out a few things. Sometimes you, 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 might have, you might hear this sort of nice saying, and I think there, people are meaning well, but they say things like, um, you should just preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Well, I think what we learn here is that words are necessary, okay? We have this amazing, miraculous thing that happens. Peter needs to use words in order to un- unpack what it means, Right? we're not, our strategy in our neighborhoods and in this world is not sort of a Mormon strategy. We need words to communicate what God has actually done. And I suppose I might say that if you are confused, as Peter does, I mean, I think Peter, what Peter does is exactly what all of us as Christians should do, which is when people are confused, because it's confusing, right? There's parts about Christianity that are confusing. What we should do is seek and our best ability to give answers, to persuade others, to help them understand the basics of Christianity. So, so if, if you're here today and you're like, yeah, I don't know. I, I am confused about Christianity. Or I don't, I don't exactly know what the Christian gospel is or what Jesus really did and the meaning of all this. Come find me after. Like, I, I would love to sit down with you. Like, we have Bible studies that go through the Gospel of Mark and, and talk about who Jesus is and, and just the meaning of it all. We would love to do that. Come find me. Or, or, or I'm guessing many of the people in this room would love to do that with you. So that's the meaning. The meaning of Pentecost, the, the meaning of the Spirit descending, well, it, it's all about Jesus. It's all a reminder that Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. Jesus is king. But now let's look lastly. Let's look at the response. Let's start in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, 
what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Whew. This This is like a churches and a preacher's dream, huh? Peter gets up, empowered by the Spirit. He preaches. They're cut to the heart, right? Pierced. Silence, right? That, that, that holy hush, right? You can hear a penny drop in the pew. And so they're like, okay, we believe you. We're persuaded. Jesus is Lord. What do we do? How do we respond? We want in. And he says, after they asked this very natural question, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive forgiveness, and you'll receive God himself. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. Now, repent is one of those sort of Christian words, but but basically repentance is a change of mind followed by a change of behavior, right? It's saying, I'm not king, right? If God's not king, all of us are kings, right? And we have our little kingdom. But what repentance says is, I'm no longer king of my little kingdom. I I no longer get to call the shots. God is king. And so repentance is saying that and then saying, I'm going to live in light of that. Repentance is coming out of the bad and going into the good. It's, it's coming out of the darkness and into the light. It's, it's running away from your sin and running towards Jesus. And he says, this is what you need to do. And when you do this, you will be forgiven. You will be pardoned, right? You'll be in the kingdom and the king will no longer say guilty. The king now will say not guilty. I mean, the, This is the gospel, right? This is the gospel we talk about every week. The gospel that Jesus saves sinners. Jesus forgives sinners. Some of you um, might know the musical Hamilton. And there's there's a powerful scene because, you know, Alexander Hamilton is not the greatest dad and father. He has uh, an affair and then his son dies in a duel and there's a song called It's Quiet Uptown. Some of you know this. And you can imagine his wife, Alexander's wife, saying, I'm not going to forgive you. No way. But there's a moment where she grabs his hand and she says, and the song is sung, and it says, forgiveness. And then there's a question, and it's, 
Can you imagine? He, he doesn't deserve her forgiveness, but she grabs his hand and says, I forgive you. Can you imagine? And for us, the question is, yeah, we can imagine. Because that is the Christian gospel. Not that we deserve to be forgiven. Far from that, we actually deserve the sort of judgment that Joel is talking about. And worse. And yet the Christian gospel says, actually, Jesus was judged. He is both the judge and he was judged such that we can get now his perfect life and his vicarious death. That's the gospel. And so when someone says, yes, I believe that, I want that, I, I, I want to turn and say that Jesus is king, well, what do they do? They put on the team jersey. That's what baptism is, okay? Baptism is putting on the team jersey, team jersey saying, I'm with Jesus. Jesus has done this inward work, and now I want to outwardly express to the world, express to the church, I want to say, I'm with team Jesus. And so the church comes along and says, yes, Yes, you are with team Jesus. We, we believe in your profession of faith and we together affirm that. And so Peter commends them. Repent, be baptized, and you'll be forgiven of sins. And you'll enter in the kingdom of God. And what we see in verse 41 is that 3,000 souls respond. Right? We see, for lack of a better term, we see Revival. Which doesn't mean that their life was going to be easy. Right? Putting your trust and faith in Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, saying that Jesus is king does not mean life will be easy. When we go through the book of Acts, one of the reasons I wanted to preach it is because we need to remind ourselves day in and day out, actually following Jesus in some ways says life's going to be harder. In some ways it's going to be easier. But there's, there's, hard, there's a hard road that's going to be traveled from the church starting in chapter two. But what this does mean is that the judgment that should fall upon them will not fall on them. Now, that's sort of an individual response, right? The individual response to the gospel. And if you have not made that individual response, I commend you, I call upon you, I I ask, do that now. But, but for the Christian, I just want to point out there's a communal response too. Did you notice that in verse 42 to 47? There's, there's a church response. And I might just say, though membership never comes in these texts, this is membership, okay? You can't do this without membership, right? Look at the outcome, right? Look at this outcome of this spirit-filled community. They devote themselves to teaching, right? They, they're a learning community. They study the Bible. They've got fellowship. They break bread. They pray, they're united. They're financially generous. Day by day, they, they practice hospitality. They eat in each other's homes. They worship. They praise God. And they're a growing evangelistic church, right? That verse 47, and day by day, God added to those who are being saved. So sometimes when we read the book of Acts, we think, oh, that, that's just descriptive, that's not prescriptive in the sense that, oh, that's just a description of what's going on, but I can't assume or I can't apply that to the church 2,000 years ago. Well, I think in many ways, my assumption is that there are some things that are important kind of redemptively that just happened once. 
but many things are just normative. And I think verse 42 and verse 47 is just normative. This is what church life ought to look like. So, so let me just sort of, in closing, let me just point out a few of them. Right? So, so, so they're a learning church, right? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're, they're a learning church. They're, they're studying God's word. But they're not just studying God's word. They're trying to think through what is God's word to say about Jesus and how Jesus applies to my life, which is a sort of catchphrase for discipleship. So, so they're a community that are seeking to disciple each other. And then I don't know, this is, I, I think, shocking. And when we first read it, we, we kind of scratch our head on it. Did you notice how generous this church is? Right? And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, this is not Marxism. That's not what's going on here, okay? It's not like they're taking all their goods, throwing it into a hat, and then each of them gets an equal portion. That, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that some people were losing their jobs because they were following Jesus and they were suffering. And other Christians hadn't lost their jobs. And they said, well, I'll suffer a little too. So I'll sell some of my goods in order to pay for you to live. Right? This is what the church does. I mean, I was reminded of this last week, uh, this past week, I was talking with Phil and Phil told me a story about, uh, a, um, some, about his parents' church in Oregon. And as far as I know, and I don't know all the details, so I'm going to spare you some of the details, but there was a, a man who taught a Sunday school class who got fired as a public school teacher in Oregon because they found out what he was teaching in his Sunday school. And, it, and as far as I can tell, he was just teaching the Bible. And so he lost his job for faithfully teaching the Bible. Now, what is the church to do in that sort of situation? Lawyer up. Yeah, sure, sure. There's, there's probably lots of things. But let me tell you what the church has always done. The church has always said, um, we're going to get 12 families who are going to each give financially and pay for the salary for this member. That's what the church has always done. When one member suffers, the entire church suffers and says, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll sell my car in order for you to pay your mortgage this month. I mean, it's sort of shocking, and yet in one sense, there's something really wonderful about it, right? Refreshing about it. That they're trusting each other, right? This is why I think without membership, I don't know how you do this, right? Because you would never know what the need is. Um, they're also a worshiping church. And then just one more thing I want to point out about this church that I think is just so wonderful is, and it's the last verse. They're a growing church. Now, I, I sort of got to be careful here. But verse 47 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. I think a Christian church is always a growing church. I, I don't mean in numbers necessarily. But I do mean a Christian church is a growing church. A church that is growing in their understanding about who Jesus is. But, but, but even more than that, a Christian church is a growing church in the sense of the gospel keeps going out and people are saved. And if you've got a, a particular condition like I have this past week, I need that verse because I have spiritual dementia. I forget. 
I think, no, God, God stopped saving people and me. But that's not true. God keeps saving. And, and one of the things we're going to learn as we keep going is that God saves the people you would go, nope, that is not who I thought God would save. I mean, when we, when we get after Stephen's death, Stephen is martyred and they're scattered. And who are the first three people that are saved? Simon the magician, so, right? A eunuch and Paul, a murderer. Yep, that's how we're going to start the, I mean, talk about the wrong program. And yet that's how God works. He takes three of the most unlikely people, saves them, empowers them, sends them out. And the rest, as we'll soon learn, is history. So don't be discouraged, right? Your job as as a parent or as a neighbor isn't to get the response. Your job is just to declare a truth and to do so in a way that is as as persuasive as you can. But your job is not your children or your neighbor's response. That is not your burden to bear. Your response is to keep putting the gospel before them time and time again in word and deed but especially in word. Okay, well, we got we to gotta finish. So, I, I told you earlier that I have a theory. And my theory is that one of the reasons why apocalyptic genre are so popular is they're sort of an avatar for us. They, they transport us to the end of the world and help us kind of existentially r- grapple with our own mortality. They make us ask questions like, how will I respond to the end of the world? And I think maybe that's how we should leave it. When Peter preached this sermon, he said, the end of the world has come. These are the latter days. For 2,000 years, it's been the latter days. But the doomsday clock is just getting closer and closer. The question is, how will you respond? How will you continue to respond? Or how ought you to respond today for the first time and put your trust and faith in Jesus? Let's pray. God, you are king and we are not. And yet so often in our days and in our lives, we, we act as if we are the king of our little kingdoms. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to to, to, to live in light of the gospel. Lord, we, we want as a church to live like the church is described here. To practice hospitality, to practice generosity. Lord, so help us to do so. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.